And so as we get ready to go through this very important message, very deep, very solemn, I pray that as we go into prayer, don't worry about anybody else. Don't worry about, Lord, are they hearing it? You want to say, Lord, am I hearing it? Am I hearing what your spirit wants to say to me, part of your church today? And I trust that as long as we have ears to hear, God is going to take us on higher ground. And we'll climb another round above Jacob's ladder, ultimately arriving in the arms of Jesus. And that's most certainly my prayer, and I hope it's your prayer. Let's go ahead and let's have a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts to receive the message. Our Father in heaven, we recognize that we're living in a very serious time in earth's history. It seems like there's confusion all over the land. There's a lack of truth. There's a lack of mercy. There's a lack of the knowledge of God. And an enemy hath done this. But Lord, we realize that you have called us as your people to come together, that we might hear your wonderful words of life, and that we will follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. And so, Lord, we avail ourselves to you with heads bowed or upon our knees, and we're asking you, please, Lord, forgive us of our sins. Please, Father, we pray, grant us your spirit. Awaken our hearts to our desperate need for thee. And Lord, I ask that as we hear your voice, may we follow you as you lead. Teach us now, we pray, and may we gain a greater understanding of this beautiful plan of salvation. Is our prayer that we ask in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. When we did our, our first session on this subject, we came to a summary point where we learned that Though we have a sinful nature, complete victory over sin is possible through Jesus Christ. We learned that in our last study, that though we have a sinful nature, it does not mean that we have to live subject to it for the rest of our lives. God has a plan to save us from the power even of this nature by doing something very simple. It is by giving us something the Bible calls the divine nature. It's one of my favorite promises in 2 Peter Chapter 1 and verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these, the promises, you and I might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruptions that are in the world through lust. God has a plan to deliver us completely from the power, the penalty, and the very presence of sin. And all of this comes to that blessed plan of salvation. But now what we want to do is we want to go a little bit deeper in that. And I want to go ahead and take you to the book of Isaiah 59. I want you to see something that, that this is the real issue in this story, in this drama. In Isaiah, the 59th chapter, the Bible indicates something that helps us understand what Adam and Eve had before they fell into sin. You know, sometimes I heard a preacher say, that Adam and Eve had face-to-face -face communion with God. Adam and Eve had face-to-face -face communion with God. And I thought to myself, what a beautiful thought, to be able to see God face-to-face -face and not be consumed. Hebrews 12, 29 tells us that God is a consuming fire, but the only thing God consumes is sin. So Adam and Eve, before sin, they had face-to-face -face communion with God. They could see God and not be consumed because there was no sin yet. 
But in Isaiah 59, I found the biblical evidence that, yeah, they must have had face-to-face communion with God because the Bible says in Isaiah 59, and if you're there, please say amen. It says in Isaiah 59 in verse 2, it says, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And then it says, And your sins have hid his face from us that he would not hear. That indicates what we're having an issue with right now. We want to see God face to face, but personally, I'm thankful that I can't. And you should be thankful too. Because until God uproots the very thing that caused the separation in the first place, we don't want to see God face to face. Because if we were to see him face to face, we would have to suffer the penalty of that, which is to be consumed. Because sin cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. It can't. And that's why all throughout the Bible, when you see God speaking to the people through a burning bush or talking even through a donkey, let alone talking through men, women, men, servants and maidservants. Why is it that God is using all these mediums to talk to us? Because it's not that he doesn't want the face to face. But it's in mercy that he knows that if I were to let them see my face right now, they would be consumed. And therefore, God uses these mediums. That's why every time I used to travel, even last week when I was over at Wildwood and I was very privileged to be there, 80 years of service in gospel medical missionary evangelism. I mean, I praise God for that institute and I pray God's blessings will continue to rest upon it. But I got to tell you the truth. When I arrived, I arrived Thursday night. And in my mind, I was like, all right, Thursday night, three more days. And then Friday. And when Friday came, I said, praise God, Friday, two more days. And then, man, then came Sabbath. And on Sabbath, I said, praise God, one more day. And some of you are like, what is he talking about? Well, what you don't understand is you see on Sunday, early in the morning, I jumped on an airplane. And when I jumped on that airplane, there was one thing that I was looking forward to more than anything else. It was to behold the face of my bride. My wife and I have become best friends. We are at a place in our relationship that I don't like being away from her. And she does not like being away from me. We, we, we marvel at how If I leave to go on a one-hour drive to go see one of the saints of God to minister, my wife will tell you it is no more than five to ten minutes after I pull out of our driveway. She knows that her phone's going to ring. And I'm just going to be like, hey, what are you doing? And then she's going to be like, nothing. And I'm just like, well, why are you doing nothing? And I mean, in other words, we don't have anything to talk about, but we're making up stuff to talk about. Why are we doing that? And sometimes we marvel at it. And I talked to her, I said, isn't it crazy? I said, babe, it's been almost 25 years of marriage. Next month is 25 years. 25 years of marriage, two years of courtship. I said, I've known you longer than I've been alive. And here it is all all these years later, and I can't go even an hour without talking to you. And we were just talking about how much we love one another. And, and, and what I'm trying to impress upon us is we actually think that God is satisfied with prayer. God says, look, I look forward to the day that I can get rid of prayer and now I can talk to my bride face to face. 
There's a reason why that hymn, when it talks about the sweet hour of prayer, towards the very last stanza, it says, there are times shall come where we will say farewell, farewell, sweet hour of prayer. Why? Because now we are face to face. God loves to commune with his bride. God loves to have communion with us. This is what every marriage is supposed to be. This is what God designed. And if your marriage is not there, that's all right. God knows how to take things that are broken and fix it. God is the master of doing that. God is the master of taking a mess and turning it into something very beautiful. This is our God. And the Bible lets us know that God says, I want the face-to-face -face communion with my people. And that's what was broken. You see, the plan of salvation, God bringing us to a place of victory over sin. The reason why it's so necessary is because that's how God has a reunion with his bride. This is how that hymn, face to face shall I behold him. That's how that hymn comes to pass. And so it is that God said, I must put together a plan. I have to put together a plan that is designed to bring about the end results that he desires. I pray that you never, ever entertain the idea that there are sins in your life that are so powerful that God is too weak to give you victory over it. I pray that you would never entertain such a thought. For to entertain such a thought is to say that we will never have communion face to face with him again. That's the only reason why we have prayer. That's the only reason why I'm talking to you versus Jesus standing here talking to you himself. God must continue to work through mediums until he can finally get what he wants from his people. And that is such a cooperation built on love because only love will do it. If somebody were to say, Dwayne, what helped you and your wife to be together for all these years and still want to talk to each other? I meet husbands all the time that look forward to going to work so they can get away from their wives. And that's sad. That hurts my heart. It hurts my heart very badly. I'm like, man, they're, not, they're missing out. They don't understand. They don't understand the plan. But what is it that has kept my wife and I all these years? I guarantee you it's nothing short of love. Love is powerful. That's why it exists forever. It's the one thing that doesn't go away. That's why when we read 1 Corinthians 13 and, and God goes through all of these things, though we know prophecy and though we know this and though we know that, God says a time will come where all of that's going to be done away with. And there'll be only one thing that continues. And that's his love. And you think God wants for you and I to learn love when we get in the kingdom? No, brothers and sisters. He wants us to learn it right now. That one source of power that is able to help even the darkest of hearts to be changed. Now, when we think about sin, there's two ways that we can look at it that we're going to magnify today. Because we're talking about the plan of salvation. Thank the Lord. Yes, we can have a victory completely over sin, but let's talk about this very quickly. I want us to go to 1 John chapter 3. I just want to, this is a reminder verse to many of us, but it may be an introductory verse to some of us. In 1 John chapter 3, the Bible helps us to understand something. Pastor Keeley, you know, last week was working with the uh, baptismal group. Thank you so much again, my brother, for that. And uh, last week we were talking with all of our baptismal candidates, and we were talking about, you know, the reality of sin and what it is. And so it is that in 1 John 3, 4, I'm sure to many of you who are already in preparation for baptism, this will come as a fresh reminder from our class last week. 
In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, the Bible spells out sin, what it is. And it says in 1 John 3, verse 4, if you're there, please say amen. amen. It says in 1 John 3 and verse 4, it says, whosoever, I'm reading from a King James, it says, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. So when we talk about Christ enabling you and I through the plan of salvation to have complete victory over sin, anytime you want to know what is victory over sin, it is very simply put, keeping the commandments. Are you following that? Because we just saw sin is breaking the law of God. So victory over sin must be keeping the law of God. Follow that? Simple enough, right? Sin breaking the commandments of God, any of them. Victory over sin, keeping the commandments of God, all of them. All of this done through the merits of Jesus Christ. Now, the reality is, is that while God wants to deliver us from the acts of sin, the acts of lawlessness, having other gods before us, bowing down to idols and worshiping them, taking God's name in vain, observing a Sabbath that man created versus that which God created, dishonoring father and mother, committing murder, committing adultery, stealing, lying, and lusting after things that belong to others rather than being content with what God has given to you. These are the Ten Commandments. And God says sin is the violation of the law. And it is true that God wants to deliver us from that. But there's something more to the story. There's a prophetic trend that I've noticed throughout the Bible that I think God wants us to understand the war that we're really in and how the plan of salvation is able to deliver us. And God wants us to see it. And I know without even knowing any of you, all I need to know is one thing, that you're human. And because you're human, I know you are in this battle. Just because you're human. As long as you're not human, you're not in this battle. This computer is not in the battle. This desk is not in the battle. But as long as you're human, you are in the battle that we're going to be talking about. And it starts in childhood and works its way up. The Bible says something that is very profound. It says pride goes before destruction and an haughty spirit before a fall. This is what is called Hebrew parallelism. It's basically making one point but expressing it in two or more ways. This is Hebrew parallelism. It's only making one point. Pride comes before the fall comes. Before we fall into sin, pride. Before we fall into the act of lawlessness, what is there? Pride. I began to walk throughout scripture and I was marveling at how God shows this thing over and over and over again, starting with the fall of Lucifer, the fall of Satan. The Bible tells us the story like this. When you look at the story of the Bible, when it talks about the fall of Satan, here's how it says it. It says, how art thou fallen 
from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Now, when Lucifer had this going on in his head, because remember, it's interesting how acts of lawlessness have its roots in what's going on in the heart. Acts of lawlessness has its roots of what's going on in the heart. Before there is a rebellious act, there's first a rebellious mind. Are you following that? And so it is that we're looking at Lucifer because he definitely fell. And the scripture cannot be denied. The Bible is very clear. Before a fall, first comes pride. And Lucifer fell. And so it is that now... When he wanted to exalt himself above the stars of God and sit on the side of God, you have to understand the implications of that. You see, in Revelation 7, 11, it says, And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces, and they did what? They worshiped God. So when Lucifer was saying, I will ascend above the, the heights of the clouds and I will be like the most high. What he's trying to do is to remove God from worship and now sit upon the throne that he might receive worship. This all started in his mind. Before the act, this thinking was already going on in his head. And then as a result of what goes on in the mind, so it is. This is why Proverbs 23 and verse 7 is very, very good. It says, as a man thinks in his mind, so is he. We can try to cover it all we want, but we won't do well. And we can fool man, but the most important thing is we can't fool God. This is why I, I live the life of WYSIWYG. I live the life of WYSIWYG. Anybody know what WYSIWYG means? You ever heard of WYSIWYG? Some of us know what WYSIWYG means. WYSIWYG means what you see is what you get. They call it WYSIWYG. In short, what you see is what you get. I don't even like wasting time faking before people. Because I already know my goal in life is not to become a great actor. My goal in life is to be as genuine as I can of who I am and who I am in Christ. That's it. But I meet a lot of people that don't follow that philosophy. And so a lot of times they present these pictures of themselves. I personally believe, and believe me when I say I don't go around boasting on myself or any of that stuff. I really don't. But I think that it is false humility to know you have something and to act like you don't have it. Like, you know, when somebody could sing really well and you're like, praise God for your singing. Oh, I can't really sing. That's false humility. If God gave you a good voice, just be like, praise God that he's given me the gift to sing. You know, that's humility. It, you know, but to act like you don't have a gift when you have a gift, that's false humility. If there's one thing over the years that I realized that God has given to me, is a spirit of discernment. You meet people, you talk to people, and it's almost very quickly that God can make you aware of probably what the direction the person's going in. Just by, I don't just listen to what people say. I pay double attention to what you don't say. You know, God teaches us that. And you begin to discern what's going on with people and so on. You, you know, you're very prayerful, 
of course. But if there's one thing I, 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 I find I struggle with is, is, is this false humility that sometimes we give you. We think that our low-toned voices, or we think that, you know, th these ways that we talk and act, and oh, we're being humble. And God is like, that's not humility. That's pride undercover. And God is not asking you and I to become really, really good actors and actresses to cover that pride well so it's hard to see. God wants us to acknowledge our pride, see it for what it is, and stay at the feet of Jesus until he absolutely uproots it from our heart. Pride comes before fall. And it was pride in Lucifer's heart. He wanted to take God's throne. Now, the reason why this is very deep is because angels know that they are not to be worshipped. Angels knew that. Lucifer was considered the chief angel. He was the highest cherubim. And so Lucifer knew that he was not worthy of worship. It's not like he was confused that this is a wrong thing that he's doing. He knew it was wrong. It's just that he became consumed in himself and he just acted on what he wanted rather than on what God's will is. There was a time that an angel came to the servant of God. And when the angel came to the servant of God, John, the apostle, it was a time John was about to do something. Let's notice what the Bible says. It's in Revelation 22, 8 and 9. The Bible says, And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel, which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not. For I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren the prophets and of them which keep the sayings of this book. And what, how does the angel close? Worship God. So angels knew God alone is worthy of worship. And that's why Satan's act was so blasphemous. Because he knew what he was seeking to do was 100% wrong. He already knew because other angels knew and he was the chief angel. How's the chief angel not know and the lower angels know? And so Satan was on this mission of dethroning God and exalting himself in the process. So now he gets kicked out of heaven. According to Revelation 12, he gets removed from heaven. He loses out on the war, right? Or at least on the battle. The war continues. And here it is that as he's kicked out of heaven, he lands on earth and he decides to, again, be undercover. And as he decides to be undercover, he goes to Eve. And when he comes to Eve, he makes an argument to her that you will notice that Satan's rebellion on earth starts with the same principle of the rebellion in heaven. Notice what he does. The Bible says, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said unto to the woman, yea. Hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. Now watch what he does next. This is very, very slick. It's, you know, we get so caught up in the fact that Satan lied, right? That he just said, not, you shall not surely die. I think what he said after you shall not surely die is way deeper. Because he says, you shall not surely die. But then he does this. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open and you shall be as gods knowing good and evil. 
And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, watch this, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and she did eat. When Satan presented the package to her to say, no, 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 when you eat of this, you actually shall be as gods. When he presented that package, you have to understand, the Bible, you know, the Hebrew word for this word God, the Elohim, it talks about the supreme God. So Lucifer is still continuing his, his mission, his rebellion, but now, you ever seen a parent where they try to fulfill their failed dreams in their children? You know, when a parent wanted to do something in life, couldn't do it, so then what do they do? They try to get their children to fulfill the dream that they could not fulfill. Many parents do that. My parents try to do that with me, my father especially. And so it is now Satan, notice, his desire was to be exactly in God's position. He could not accomplish it. So now he's instigating this thought into the mind of Adam and Eve. I want you to fulfill what I myself could not fulfill. You now become like the supreme God. And here it is. This is how sin came into our world. The same pride that was in the heart of Satan is now the same pride that he's looking to put into the hearts of Adam and Eve to bring sin into this world. To not be content with where you are in Christ, but to try to exceed that for the reason God created you and to become like God himself. This is not only true just in the earth. Satan continues his rebellion through the kingdoms. You remember that the Bible says, and Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter, how before the Lord? Before, before the Lord. If you read that verse for face value, it almost seems like he was for God because it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore, it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech and Echad and Calne in the land of Shinar. So notice that Nimrod was the founder of the kingdom of Babel, and Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. The word before actually means against. So Nimrod was God's enemy, not God's friend. So Nimrod was a mighty hunter against God, and he is the one that got Babel started. Now, the reason that this is important is because notice the mindset of those who got the city of Babel started. Notice the mindset. The Bible says, and they said, go to. This is after the flood. Let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And what did they want to do when they built the city and the tower? Let us make us a name. Don't lose that. Let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, behold, the people is one. And they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord scattered them abroad from thence, from upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Yes, it is true. The people who built the Tower of Babel, 
they should have focused on their sins being the reason for the flood rather than just trying to find another way to escape. That should have been their focus. But what's even deeper is that when they built the tower, their desire was not just to escape another flood. They said, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to be known as the people that outwitted and outsmarted even God. We're going to be known as the people that thwarted God's plans. We're going to be known as the people that when God tried to wipe us out, we were able to survive it. And therefore, rather than people honoring God, we've made a name for ourselves. They will honor us. You see, that term, when it says, let us make us a name, it means as a mark. The word name, it's a mark or memorial of individuality, honor, authority, and to become renowned. So literally, I want you to see the rebellion started in heaven. The rebellion was rooted upon pride. He gets kicked out of heaven and he lands on earth. He encourages Adam and Eve in rebellion. And once again, their rebellion is rooted in pride. Then the very kingdom that gets the highest of highlights in the Bible, which is none other than the kingdom of Babel, the kingdom of Babel is established and the very root of its rebellion against God is pride. All instigated by Satan himself, the very chief and father of pride. As we continue with this, you'll remember that there was the fall of Babylon, literal. There was the literal fall of Babylon. When you watch the literal fall of Babylon, it's very interesting that you remember Daniel said to King Nebuchadnezzar, pleading with him, wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee and break off thy sins by righteousness and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. Daniel was pleading with Nebuchadnezzar. This is one of the reasons why some of us, we are put in the places of other people that are gross heathens. Sometimes we go to work and we say, man, I'm surrounded by heathens. I'm surrounded by people that don't know God. They do not honor God. The word heathen by definition means one who is unacquainted with the true and living God. That's a heathen. A heathen is not somebody who's just dirty, nasty and perverted. A heathen is simply one who is not acquainted with the true and living God. Sometimes we are surrounded by heathens in our job. They wear very nice suits. They look crisp and clean. They can look dirty and grimy. It doesn't matter. They can wash their hands before surgery. Or they can hit the signal to let you know they're about to make a right turn on the bus. Heathens come in every shape, form, and size. But the reality is, is that when we come in contact with those who are not acquainted with the true and living God, like Daniel, maybe God has put us there to put us in a position that as we build relationship, one day we can say to them, as Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar, break off thy sins by righteousness. Maybe God will show favor to you. And so let us not ever think that we're at our jobs by accident. We might very well be there by design. God put you in the path of certain people that you may win them. Well, here it is that this is what Daniel's doing. Daniel's pleading with Nebuchadnezzar. But as we know, shortly after that discussion, here's the next story in the outline. It says at the end of 12 months, as he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon, the king spake and said, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, 
there fell a voice from heaven saying, O Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And the same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers, and his nails like birds' claws. He who exalts himself shall be abased. Nebuchadnezzar goes through this humbling period, but thank the Lord, eventually a time came where Nebuchadnezzar is cured. And when Nebuchadnezzar comes out of his darkness, here's what he had to say, being foundational to why he fell as a king. It says, and at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom and mine honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Watch the last verse. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in what? Those that walk in pride, he is able to abase, to humble. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged, why did I become like an animal? It was because of pride. Now, what gets deep is that you would think children are supposed to learn from their parents' experience. But not so with Belshazzar. The Bible says, continuing now, Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousands. And Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. And then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem. And the king and his princes and his wives and his concubines drank in them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. And in the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then it says, And thou his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart. Though thou knewest all this, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives, and thy concubines have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, of iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know, and the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. Once again, why did the kingdom of Babylon go down? It was because of self-exaltation. It is because of pride. And when Babylon went down, it went through a very permanent fall. 
You'll remember that the Bible made it very clear. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Then it says, it shall never be inhabited. This is one of the tests for the atheists to prove that God is wrong. If you want to believe that God is wrong, go try to inhabit Babylon. If you go and try to inhabit Babylon and create a populace in Babylon of people who live there, not visit, who live there, if you can do that, literally the Bible is wrong and all Christians are wasting their time. But do you know that after all the years that God said this about the fall of Babylon, do you know that CNN, they put out an article, and uh, this was several years ago, but then I found an article in 2021, still the same state. It says, bringing Babylon back from the dead. And here's what they said in the article. They said, Babylon was one of the glories of the ancient world. Its walls and mythic hanging gardens listed among the seven wonders. Founded about 4,000 years ago, the ancient city was the capital of 10 dynasties in Mesopotamia. Considered one of the earliest cradles of civilization and the birthplace of writing and literature. But following years of plunder, neglect, and conflict, the Babylon today scarcely conjures that illustrious history. In recent years, the Iraqi authorities have reopened Babylon to tourists, hoping that one day the site will draw visitors from all over the globe. But despite the site's remarkable archaeological value and impressive views, it is drawing only a smattering of tourists drawn by a curious mix of ancient and more recent history. That's the best that Babylon gets to date. In other words, to date, Babylon is still uninhabited, just like God said. So in other words, when it says Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the fall is permanent. Brothers and sisters, this is the impact of pride. This is what God always wanted us to understand is the more that I live according to exalting what I feel, exalting what I want to do, exalting my views, even on how the gospel should go forward. Pride does exist in the heart of ministers. Pride does exist in the hearts of husbands. Pride does exist in the hearts of fathers. Your home is not even your home. It's God's home. You don't run your home according to the way you feel. You run your home according to God's word. You see, the Bible presents a picture that often we don't think about it. Let me show you a text of scripture that we probably don't consider as much as we should. Go to 1 Corinthians 6. When we go to 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, the Bible actually presents a picture that if, you know, sometimes if we just, if we just took the time to think it through, we would see a new reality of how we should live as Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in verses 19 and 20 of 1 Corinthians 6, right? This is a passage of scripture that probably a lot of us are familiar with, but maybe we're not. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it is right there in verses 19 and 20, a familiar passage of scripture. The Bible says it like this. It says, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. Verse 20, verse 20. For ye are bought. The reason we're not our own is because we've been bought. For ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, if we really believed this verse, there is nothing we would do with our bodies without first getting permission from the owner. Are you following that? 
There's nothing we would do with our bodies. You wouldn't feed it what you want. You wouldn't dress it how you want. We wouldn't take it on certain forms of entertainment how we want. If this body really belongs to God, if we really believe that, then what we would do is say, okay, Lord, I want to dress a certain way, but what do you and your word say is the way that I should dress? Lord, I want to eat certain things, but what does your word say of how I should eat? Lord, I want to go certain places for fun and entertainment and excitement, but what does your word say should be the place that I go for the fun, the entertainment, and the excitement? You see, if we really believe these words, then what we would do is first go to the owner, present to him our desire, and stand back and study it out and let his will be done. But this is the reason why sometimes we hear the one amen. Because this cuts right across our day-to-day -day lifestyle. You see, Christianity is fine to do as long as it's something we do once a week, you know, we do this little thing. But once we start to int introduce Christianity and Christian principle into the day-to-day -day lifestyle, that's when we come in contact with conflict. And we begin discovering a will that is against our own. Parents, what if God says, I have a different place for your children than where they are now? Is it possible that God may tell some parents that I want your children to be here? Maybe God might tell a parent, I want you to give up your career and homeschool your child. You know, it's funny. I, I remember one time when we, when, my, when we were first doing homeschooling, I remember uh, somebody was like, why would you do all of that? You know, are you kidding me? And, you know, they, they were kind of ridiculing, basically. And I remember that as they were saying that to me, I said, well, I said, this is interesting. I said, let me ask you something. I said, do you have a bank account? And what they would do, they were sending their children to uh, public school at the time. They was like, ah, oh, send them to public school, man. It's inexpensive. It's, you know, whatever. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And then they was like, but you should. And, you know, they were really trying to encourage me. And I, and I remember asking them, I said, let me ask you a question. I said, um, you have a bank account? They said, yeah. I said, could I get the account numbers and the password? And they looked at me, kind of like how some of you are looking at me. <laughs> you know, they looked at me like, no. And I was like, why not? And I said, don't worry, trust me. I said, I won't take a single thing, but let me get the account, let me get the password. And they were like, no. And I'm like, why not? It's like, I don't know, you might be of God today, but you could be against him tomorrow, brother. And, you know, you, you know, so it gave some pretty good reasoning. Right. And I remember I thought about that. I said, so I said, so you're concerned about me possibly taking from your account and spoiling your money and all this stuff. And they said, yep, that's right. I said, well, I find that to be interesting. They said, tell me why. I said, because it seems like you're more protective over your bank account than you are over the minds of your children. I said, you'll let a child sit under the tutelage of someone who potentially thinks equivalent to a Philistine for up to eight hours in a day, and you will let your child sit under that, risking the results and facts of what often happens with children who go through public, the public school system. They end up forgetting God, not worshiping God, turning away from God, questioning God, becoming atheists, and the rest. I said, you're willing to take that risk with the minds of your children while you're overprotective with your bank accounts. Sometimes we love our money than even our own children. 
I said, I'm sorry, I don't want to risk losing my children. I'll sooner lose my money, but I don't want to lose the minds and hearts of my children. Do you know that there's some of us that if we prayed about it, God may call some of us and do different careers. What if God called you to a different career than the one you're doing now? In other words, beloved, how do you really know that you are where you are right now because God put you there? Sometimes one person came to me and said, Dwayne, I know God put me there. I said, okay, just entertain me. I said, why wouldn't Satan put you there? I said, just think, think it through. I said, give me a good reason. I said, why is it Satan wouldn't put you there? Because sometimes we think just because the job came on time and provided money and stuff like that, you know, we think, oh, yeah, well, then obviously God put me here. It's like, well, that's not obvious. Last I checked, Satan went up on a mountain and he told Jesus, listen, I'll give you all sorts of money if you just do what I say. So just because you're getting great pay doesn't mean that God put you there. Just because you can influence others doesn't mean God put you there. How do you really know that God put you there? And the only way you're going to know is you got to go back to his word. And the bottom line is, this is the greatest issue. You see, what is pride? Pride is the exalting of what we think, what we feel, and what we're going to do above what the clear words of God say. That's pride. And God knows that this is a very serious issue and he wants to lay it low because this is the impact of pride. It doesn't cause loss, it causes eternal loss. Babylon's never going to be inhabited again. And the reason why was because of all that pride that was in there in the first place. God allows us to see that as a symbol even today. May we humble our hearts before God. You see, the reason why is because there's also a spiritual Babylon that still exists. The literal Babylon is gone. The literal Babylon will never be inhabited again. But there is a spiritual Babylon that is highly inhabited. In fact, it's so populated that God has a last message, which is to tell the people to come out of her. Notice how the Bible puts it. The Bible says, and there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And therefore... What does God say? Revelation 18. Let us notice what the Bible says in Revelation, the 18th chapter, as we bring out some final points. In Revelation, the 18th chapter, it is verses 1 to 5 that God talks about the spiritual Babylon. And when God talks about the spiritual Babylon, which is existent, which is impacting and affecting all peoples all over the world in one way or another, the Bible says it like this. In Revelation 18, starting at verse 1, if you're there, please say amen. amen. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation. So see, this Babylon is inhabited, but it says has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying something sensible. Come out of her, my people, 
that you be not partakers of her sins and that you receive not of her plagues. Why? Verse five, for her sins have reached unto heaven and God hath remembered her iniquities. Babylon is a place where God has his people that he's saying, I want you to come out of her. Do not partake of her dainties. Do not partake of her spirit. But what is the spirit of this spiritual Babylon? It seems like everywhere else we're seeing pride all over the map. But did we see pride with this Babylon? Look at verses six and seven, same book and same chapter. In Revelation 18, six and seven, it says, reward her even as she rewarded you and double unto her, double according to her works. In the cup which she hath filled, fill to her double. Verse seven, why does God bring this judgment upon Babylon? It says, how much she hath done what? Glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Once again, pride is the foundation to the lawless acts. And the reason why we went through this study, beloved, is because many of us in the Seventh-day Adventist church we didn't mean to do this, but it is the result. We didn't mean to do this. In the Seventh-day Adventist church, we have a practice. You saw that practice when our brother Azariah got baptized several weeks ago, for those of you who were here. In the Seventh-day Adventist church, we want to make sure that people make intelligent decisions when they follow God. And that's why when we make an appeal for baptism, we do not immediately go from the appeal to the water and go ahead and dip them in the water. We make an appeal for baptism. After we make the appeal for baptism, then we sit down with the baptismal candidate and we go over with the baptismal candidate the requirements of God. We go over God's commandments. We go over his words. We make sure that the individual understands that they are joining a movement. And therefore, we say, if, you're, if you've been breaking the Sabbath to be baptized, we need to stop that. We need to keep the Sabbath. If we study with a, a man and a woman who's living together and they're, and they're not married and they're, they're having sex and all these other things, we have to let them know either you are going to have to separate from the home. Or, though not rushing, or they need to be married. Before they get baptized, we cannot baptize someone if they are practicing fornication. And we go through the list. So the person comes back and says, Pastor, we're getting married. You know, I studied with a couple like that in Canada. The lady was like 65 and the man was 55. And they were living together, but they weren't married. But they really wanted to be baptized. And therefore, we said, all right, well, you know, before that can happen. And literally, they started going through counseling and everything. They ended up getting married. And after they got married, they said, all right, Pastor Lemon, will you come and baptize us? I was like, of course. And I came and I baptized them. But here's the point. We correct. We correct our external acts of lawlessness. But here's a question to those of you who are baptized members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. 
How many ministers sat down with you before you got baptized and asked the question, is there any resentment in your heart towards anyone? Is there any unforgiveness that you still have in your heart? Are there any areas of conceit and self-exaltation that you have yet to surrender to Christ? Is there any bitterness, anger, that you want to make sure you do not carry into the new life? I was never asked those questions. And so you know what happened to me? I stopped my Sabbath breaking. I stopped my adulterous behavior. I stopped all of my external acts of sin. But you know what? I had resentment in my heart. I went down in the water and I came back up with resentment still in my heart. Unforgiveness still in my heart. Bitterness still in my heart. Absolute pride, pride, pride still in my heart. Fully intact. And Everybody was okay with that. And we wonder why the church is in the mess that it's in right now. We wonder why. Why is it that there's so many problems, so much issues? It's because we don't check heart sins. We only deal with external sins. And that's not the gospel. It never was. It never was. Parents, you're accomplishing nothing. If all you do is if you know your child does not love God, you know your child has no passion for Christ. You know your child has sins of the heart that are very present. But just because they say, "Okay, fine, from Friday sunset to Saturday sunset, I'll not do any secular stuff. I won't steal. I won't this. I won't that. And we think they're ready for baptism. It's not the case. It's better to pray and wait than to just so quickly rush them in just so you can say you did it when at the end of the day, really, we did nothing. You see, family, what we have to understand is Proverbs 21 and verse 4 says, a high look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked is sin. This should be surrendered to before we get baptized. This is the issue. You see, Jesus, when he wanted to save us, he did not want to just save us from the external acts of sin. He wanted to save us from the heart of sin by giving us a new heart. Being born again. Understanding my need. That's the question. You know, if we sat down with baptismal, do you see your need for Christ, that you need a new heart? Do you see that your heart is corrupt? Do you see that the best works that we do is tainted with selfishness and self-exaltation? Do we see it? And it seems like to me thus far, the answer is still no, because I still know a lot of fathers who are going to do what they're going to do. I see a lot of husbands that are still going to do what they're going to do. I see a lot of members We're just going to do what we're going to do. Brothers and sisters, without saying too much, I marvel at how easily we hurt each other in the name of Jesus. I just marvel at it. It's deep to me that you could hurt me and I can hurt you and we can move on and still sing before the people of God. 
We need to thank God his mercies there, family. We need to thank God for his mercy. I marvel at how easy it is for us to hurt each other. I'm talking present issues right now. There are some of us, we are hurting each other and we don't care. And we actually think that God accepts our service. God has to save us from that heart. There's no way he could. If God, tell you what, if God lets heart like that into the kingdom, count me out. I don't want to go into a kingdom like that. If we're going to go into the kingdom still with selfish, self-exalting, corrupt hearts, while we do a lot of external good acts, I prefer not to be there because that's pretty much what we're living right now. I thought heaven was supposed to be someplace better. God wants us to see, family, we need a heart reform. We need a heart conversion. We need to recognize that outside of my external acts of sin, we got to deal with this proud heart sin issue. And do you know there's only one way that it gets solved? Talking about Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It's deep. Satan exalted himself and brought sin into the world. Jesus humbles himself and brings salvation to the world. Complete contrast. Absolute, complete contrast. This is why when Jesus wanted to give us something to learn about, he said it real clear in Matthew 11, right? He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And he says, and here's what I want you to learn. I want you to learn that I'm meek. And I want you to learn that I'm lowly in heart. This is how you're going to find rest unto your souls. You see, salvation is available to us to deliver us not just from the external acts of sin, but from the very heart of sin, which is rooted in pride. Christ says, it's through my humility that I'm going to save you. It's through my humility. You see, God does want to save us from sin, especially the sin of pride. Especially the sin of pride. And that means that the plan of salvation is largely based on saving us from heart sins and not just merely from external acts of sin. And if we really understand that, there's a whole lot of people that probably still need to get baptized. And I promise you, I'm not making this for some pitch to put people in the pool. But it's possible to be in the church and be in the church for decades and have been in a lost condition for decades. It's humbling. I, I, I get it. Very humbling. Very humbling. I get that. But it sounds to me like that's exactly what a lot of us need. Is we need that humility. We need to start all over again. But what's the point of continuing in the same condition we're in? And family, please understand, humility is not becoming a doormat, letting people walk all over you, you never assert a right. That, 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 please away with this idea. You know, I, I, I've, seen people, I've seen people stand on the word of God and will say, you're being proud. That's not true. 
While we talk about what humility is, we, we, we want to guard against what humility is not. We don't want to talk about what pride is, and, and we have to make sure we talk about what pride is not. You are not proud when you believe the word of God, you hold people accountable to the word of God before you follow their counsels. That's not pride. That's obedience. In fact, that's not just obedience. That's humility. Look. Implicit belief in Christ's words is true humility, true self-surrender. So away with this idea that when somebody seems so relentless, you try to get them to go a certain direction and they just can't go in that direction because they're spending time in the word and they're saying, I can only move as the word of God says. And if I don't see the word of God, I cannot agree. If there's nothing in the word of God, I cannot do it. I'm doing this because the word of God says to do it. Family, do you know, you want to know what humility is? You see how we have a lot of problems in the church? We have a problem with members, right? Have you noticed that sometimes members have a problem with each other? Oh, please hear what I'm saying. I promise you this is the voice of God. Do you know members who have problems with each other? Some of us have had problems with each other for years. It's not just days. It's not just weeks. It's not just months. It's years. Years we're not talking to each other. Years we give each other shady greetings. You know, we'll see each other and be like, happy Sabbath. And, you know, and, and we keep moving, knowing that I don't like you and I know you don't like me, so let's just keep it here. None of that's Christian. Do you know what a true, humble man would do? I have a problem with this person. This person has a problem with me. We are developing a lifestyle of fake communion with each other. We say hellos and goodbyes and do all the things, but we know we really are bothered with each other. You hurt me, I hurt you. We're still walking in that hurt together, and we're just moving on. You know what, you know what a humble person would do? The humble person would go to that individual and say, listen, um, can we talk about this issue? Because, you know, we, we're having problems. You're my brother, you're my sister. I don't want to see you and have anything in my heart against you. I don't want you to see me and have anything in your heart against me. And so I'm asking, can we please talk about this so we can try to see with prayer and guidance from the word of God how God can help us resolve this issue? Because I believe God wants us to be reconciled. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The person says, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to deal with you. You get on my nerves or this, that, and the other. Let's just leave things be. You know what a humble person does? I'm talking about God's humility, not ours. You know what a humble person does? The humble person goes, all right. And not far later, that person comes with either one or two more people. And they go to that person and say, hi. I know we tried really hard to work things out beforehand. But God's word says that when we can't resolve issues one-on-one, -on -one, then we are to bring one or two witnesses to see if God can work through them to provide counsel so that through their counsel, we can hopefully see eye to eye and now have the communion that God wants us to have one with another. So now I'm asking if we can all meet together and address that. The person says, no, no to you, no to you, and no to you. I'm not dealing with any of this. The witnesses take note of what they saw, mentally, of course. They're not going to pull a pad out right there. And, you know, 
Witnesses take note. They see what happens. And it's like, all right, we go. But that person keeps coming up front singing. That person who, who's, who's clearly not following scripture, they keep coming up front singing. They keep coming up front preaching. They keep coming up front teaching. Even though they have wounded somebody or it is believed that they have wounded somebody and they're not willing to follow the word of God. Do you know that the Bible says that person is to be brought before the church and the church has something like a business meeting. It's not for visitors. It's just for the members of the church. And do you know before the members of the church that case is to be brought up again? So-and-so and so-and-so have XYZ issues. They have tried to calm it down one-on-one. -on -one. It didn't work. They tried to bring witnesses. The witnesses say, yep, we were there. We saw the attitude. We saw how they dealt with it. And yes, it was wrong what they did. And now, as a church, we're going to hear the issue out and see if God can now speak through the body to help bring these souls to a place of reconciliation. The person says, I don't want to hear what any of y'all have to say. I'm doing what I want. Do you know the humble person, in this case now the humble people, they literally have to review that person's situation and because that person is belligerent, they are literally to be removed from church membership. Whether phone call, visit, or letter, whichever way they'll accept it. And then, after they've been removed from church membership, they are to be visited by the pastor, the elders, the leaders of the church with great energy and consistency, pleading with the heart, humble yourself before God, sister. Humble yourself before God, brother. It's not worth it. We're going to be into heaven. We're all going to be together. Let us work out our issues. And we do that until, by the grace of God, that person redirects and comes back to the Lord. Now, here's the question. How many of us are doing that? It seems easier to just simply go, hi. It's easier to do that than follow the word of God. And guess what? And the person who follows the word of God, guess what they're going to be called? Self-exalting, proud, and all this other stuff. Well, no, they're not. They're just following exactly what the word of God says. So please remember, while pride is terrible, let us never confuse pride with obedience. When you're doing exactly what the words of God say in the spirit of Christ, that is not pride. That's the word of God. And so it is, family. What have we learned today is we learned victory over sin involves more than overcoming external acts of lawlessness. It includes overcoming the chief sin of the heart, which is pride. This can only be accomplished through receiving the humility of Christ. And brothers and sisters, this is what our focus on the plan of salvation will be. It is not God just delivering us from bad acts. It's delivering us from corrupt hearts.
And I don't know about you, but I see my need of not just deliverance from bad acts. I see my need for deliverance of a very corrupt heart. And my question is, if you see your need for the same deliverance, would you please stand to your feet with me? And as you stand, I want you to know Jesus stands with you. God wants us to really understand, beloved, that we're living in a very serious time. A lot of people are going to be lost, not merely because of bad acts, but because of unsurrendered hearts. It's not our occasional good deeds or misdeeds that defines yours and my character. It's the tendencies of what's going on in that heart. That's how our characters are defined. And so I'm, I'm, I, as I said, by the grace of God, I will be WYSIWYG with you. I'm going to be what you see is what you get. Struggles and all. I don't want to act. I don't want to fake. I don't want to be something I'm not before the people of God. And we need to learn how to say, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. I need your prayers. I'm not asking you to start making open confession of your personal sins. That is not what I'm recommending. You take those things to God. But if you got some family in the church, don't be afraid to come to them and say, hey, listen, I need you to pray for me. I'm going through some very serious battles, very real battles. But with God, all things are possible. I'm glad I got a very, <laughs> I have a hyper small circle that I can go and talk to like that. But I hope you have a, at least a circle of somebody. God wants to give us true deliverance through the plan of salvation. And it is not just to save us from bad acts. It's to save us from corrupt hearts. And I guarantee you, if the fountain be pure, all the actions will be pure. But if that fountain is still corrupt, the poison will slip through and it'll show itself at different times. And we don't want that. God cannot save us in sin, only from sin. And he wants to give you and I new hearts. And that's why you're standing. And so please bow your heads with me as we have a, as we have a word of prayer on this end. Our loving Father, we are grateful, Lord. The trend of Satan is that pride began in heaven and pride brings us to the closing scenes of this earth. And the plan of salvation is not merely you saving us from bad acts or just covering our bad acts with your righteousness. It is a true overcoming. It is a true deliverance, but it comes because of receiving a new heart. And Lord, we need this new heart. Because even in ministry, even in religion, we still find ways and means to exalt ourselves. And this is a mark of the character of Satan. But all along, Lord, you have shown us in your words, it's the humility of Christ that is our salvation. We cannot just receive Jesus without his humility. We need that humility, Lord. That's how we are going to truly be saved from the heart condition of sin. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to pay more and still more attention to this very fact. And may our lives and our hearts be surrendered completely to thee. And may we remember, Lord, following your word is never, ever pride. It's faithfulness. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.